It is good to be here with you and continuing in our study of Second Peter, which we started last week, and uh, we're we're taking our, we're taking baby steps. Uh, we covered two verses last week. Uh, we're covering a whopping two verses this week, uh, but then things will start to speed up a little bit uh, because we probably don't want to get to December and still be here in the book of Second Peter, though we could spend that much time uh, in this marvelous little book. My wife and I um, have made some purchases over the, well, over the last year, uh, the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023, and these were purchases that required um, some assembly. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate buying things and then opening up the box and reading this message. Items needed for assembly. That's their way of telling you, we haven't given you what you really need, so you're going to have to go to the store, buy the parts and the tools uh, in order to, to build this thing, uh, or at the very least, you're going to have to kind of rummage through your garage or your shed to find those tools and those parts um, that you need to be able to put the thing together. And uh, I prefer the message, all items for assembly included. You know, when I, when I buy something, I, I want everything that I need to be in the box. And I realize some of those tools are really cheap and everything else, but it, it saves me time. Uh, if I've got a tool and, it, and I feel like, okay, a power tool will really help here, I'll go get it. But I really want, I want all the parts. I bought a, a generator this past winter uh, for the first time. I've been wanting to do it because I'm always worried that we're going to lose our power in the middle of the winter and not have any heat or anything. So I bought it, and it, it was missing screws and bolts. And uh, it was just really frustrating, you know, trying to put it all together. But when I, I mentioned that that I, I want all the parts to be included, God kind of does that for us, has done that for us. And he has done it for us when we came to faith in Christ. When a person comes um, to a place of repentance, in a place where they believe the gospel, God then gives that individual everything that they need to live the Christian life. And this is really what the Apostle Peter uh, tells us here in our text this morning, that God has provided everything we need to be like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word your servant Peter, and Lord, we know that uh, he wrote to a group of people he cared deeply about, he was concerned for them, and so he wrote to them these truths that they might take them to heart and apply them to their lives, and Lord, that uh, as a result, um, your word, the knowledge of who you are, that it would not only help them grow in Christ, but it would protect them from those who would seek to do them harm. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do the same with us, that as we unpack these verses, as we learn what you have to say to us, that, Lord, that you would help us grow in Christ and that you would fortify us against false teaching and false teachers. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, 
When you look at the text here this morning, and if you have your Bibles, and I do hope that you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to first, excuse me, Second Peter chapter one. Uh, I want to read those verses, and then we're going to kind of unpack them as we go along. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Speaking of the Lord. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What I'd like to do this morning is just kind of uh, approach the text by asking two questions. What and how? I want to, to, to just kind of look at it through that lens. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about what God has done for us and what he has given to us. And if you'll notice in verse 3, it says that God, by his divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Oh, I forgot to, to mention, there's another message that I don't like very much when I open up a box, and that is the message, batteries not included. Uh, I don't know if you've ever run into that problem, especially at Christmas when your kids are small and you're trying to, to get the toy to work and, uh, and, and it says batteries not included and you didn't think to buy the battery so you go looking for them and it never fails. I either don't have the right kind of battery or um, I don't have enough of them. And so, um, but when it comes to living the Christian life, the believer doesn't have that problem. See, God has, by his divine power, provided everything we need for life and godliness. And the Greek word for power here is dunamis. It's the word that we get dynamite from. Now, when we think of dynamite, we think of its explosive power, its destructive force. But when we speak of God's dunamis, it is more like the power of the sun. I mean, we know the sun's out there. We can feel its warmth. We appreciate its light. But really, in a lot of ways, we hardly notice it. It's just ever-present. Its tremendous power is beyond our ability really to, to fathom. And we know that without it, all life would cease to exist. And it is in the same way a good descriptor of, of what God's power is like. Some, sometimes, you know, um, we don't even notice it, but the fact that we're here this morning is a testimony to God's power in that he gave us life and that he sustains life. It is by God's power that we are in Christ, that we have been saved, we have been made alive. And it's by the same power, the scripture says, that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, the sun's energy one day will dissipate. It will fade away. God's never will. 
His power is infinite. His power is immense. It's eternal. Now, the life spoken of here is the kind of life that God intended for us to have before sin entered the world, before the world fell. And the word godliness refers to our conduct or practice. So what Paul is getting at here is is that the life of God should be expressed in our conduct, in our practice. And as we practice what we preach, what we say we believe we ought to be living out in our lives. And we're going to unpack this more next week when we look at verses 5 through 11. Can you imagine we're going beyond two verses next week? But notice that Peter says here that he has granted to us all things. Not some things, not most things, not many things. He has granted to us all things. Why? All all things that pertain to godliness, to life. Everything that we need to be like Jesus In fact, other translations, some of you may have it, they use the word everything. God has given us everything we need. God, by his power and his grace, has given us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. Now, I know on on one... On one hand, we would probably all nod our heads in, in agreement to that. But in reality, I think we struggle with this sometimes. When things don't go the way that we expect them to go or want them to go, we can question whether God is aware of our circumstances, whether he cares about what we're going through, whether he can do anything about it. And oftentimes we find ourselves almost begging and pleading that God would do for us, in many cases, something that the Bible says he has already done for us. And we need to have a right theology about God. God is not holding back from us. That was one of the biggest things I struggled with when I first came to faith in in him. I thought God was capricious. I I thought God kind of teased us a little bit by telling us what he wanted us to do, how he wanted us to live, but then didn't really help me do it. Every time I sinned and I failed in the same area, I wondered, God, why haven't you answered that prayer? What else do I need to do? What else do I need from you in order to be the person you are calling me to be? God doesn't play hide and seek with his children. We don't have to pry God's hands open so that we can receive his blessings. He has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, he says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, not some, not most, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we have to say, do we really believe that? Do we believe God has given us all things? He has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. And he has done this at the moment of conversion. We we, we don't need to beg and plead for God to give us something that he has withheld from us in order to 
to be like Jesus. I mean, think about it. Does he or does he not want us to be like his son? And if he does, why in the world would he hold back from us? Why would he keep things from us that we need in order to be the person that he wants us to be? We don't need some special or secret knowledge or some spiritual or mystical experience to make us complete. We don't need a new blessing, a new revelation, a new manifestation of the Spirit to live fruitful, godly lives. And yet so many Christians pursue these things in the hopes that somehow this will give them the victory, that now they'll be able to live the victorious Christian life. It's a wrong view of God. God has already given us everything we need to be like Jesus and to live for him, including his Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, think about this for a moment. Think, think about a baby. When a baby is born, that baby has everything it needs for life. It has all the parts. Everything's included. There's a brain, internal organs, hands, feet, nose, eyes, mouth. What does it need? It needs to grow. It doesn't need another appendage. It needs to grow. And when you nurture that baby, when you feed the baby, when you take care, the, the baby will naturally grow because it has everything that it needs for growth. And I think in the same way, the repentant sinner has been born again with everything that he needs for life and godliness. He or she only needs to grow. God wants his children to look like his son like the Lord Jesus. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. Um, he put it this way. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is why he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But that's not all that God has done for us. Remember, we're answering the question, what has God done for us? What has he given to us? Well, you notice in verse four, we're told that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Like what, Paul? Oh, just think about them. <laughs> Salvation, eternal life, his Holy Spirit, his power and presence in our lives, his authority to be his witnesses, his second coming, heaven is our eternal home, and the fact that he is returning to judge the living and the dead. There are so many promises that God has given to us. Why has he done this? Why has he given us these promises? So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, this statement that Peter uh, has made here points back to the past as well as to the future. It is like two sides of the same coin. 
One side tells us what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. The other side kind of tells us what happens after that person has come to faith in Christ. So let's talk about side B first. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, I don't know what translation you have, but I think the, the, the English Standard Version and the New American Standard actually rightly render the Greek, Greek verb here as having escaped. Some translations um, d- doesn't communicate that very clearly, but this word means to escape or to run from or to flee. When a person is converted, he is not only forgiven of his sin, he is set free from the power of sin and the corruption that is in the world. The word, word translated corruption speaks of moral corruption or the perversion of virtue. It's a corruption that is brought about by the evil desires in the human heart. And it's pervasive. By God's grace and power, we have fled the corruption that is in the world. But you know what? It's not a one and done deal. It's not like, you know, okay, on the day in which we come to faith in Christ, I am turning my back from sin, from the corruption that's in the world, and that's it. Smooth sailing. That's not what the New Testament teaches. We must continue to flee from it. We must continue to run from it until the day the Lord calls us home. That's why Paul tells Timothy, some of you are probably familiar with the phrase where he says, Timothy, flee youthful lusts or youthful passions. You look back a little bit earlier, there's a whole bunch of sins that he tells them to flee from, to to run away from. But the Christian life... don't mistake that to think that the Christian life is all about running away from sin. You know, fleeing from sin, running from the devil. It's more about running to Jesus. It's, it's about running to him because you know that you were created to be like him and you desire to be with him. We are saved to become like Christ. Now, side A gives us another picture, and it's a, it's a picture of who we are to become. He says we are to be partakers of the divine nature. Now, some people take that and they, they run with it, and you get some really, really crazy doctrines that come out of it. Let me be very, very clear. To be a partaker of the divine nature does not mean you become God. It doesn't mean you become a part of God. Or a God. Or a little God. Rather, it means that we share in Christ's divine life. He imparts his life to us so that we may live. When we repent and believe the gospel, the Bible says we are regenerated. Or if you prefer, we are born again. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sin have been made alive by the power of God. God then sends his Holy Spirit to live within us and we become a part of his forever family. I love what 
The Apostle John says in his first epistle, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When the moment you come to faith in Christ, God makes you his son. God makes you his daughter. You become a part of his family. Paul tells us in Romans that for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Being a partaker of the divine life, the divine nature means that the life of God flows through us. And as a result, we possess, at least in small degree, something of his moral excellence. You know, when you go all the way back to Genesis, when God created man in his image, the truth about man was he was to reflect God to the world. That's what it means to be an image. We're image bearers, but that image was destroyed. It was, it was warped, it was marred by sin. Christ came to restore the image of God in us. And as a result, we reflect him to those around us. It's something that begins at conversion, but won't be fully realized until Jesus returns. It's a lifelong process. The Apostle John refers to this, um, what I call now but not yet understanding when he wrote, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As we share in the life of Christ, we become increasingly more and more like Jesus. The theological word for this is sanctification. The process whereby we become more and more like Jesus. And it will take our entire life, or as long as God gives us breath. That is what we are to do, and it's by God's power and his precious promises that we can become partakers of the divine nature. So that answers the question of what? What God has done for us, what God has given to us. What about the how? How do we avail ourselves of God's power and promises and become partakers of his divine nature? How does this happen? Well, you have to kind of go back to verse three. I just love how Peter structures this. He puts it right in the middle and he says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It is through the knowledge of God and his Christ that we avail ourselves of God's power and his promises. It begins by hearing and believing the gospel message and by understanding that that same dunamis that raised Christ from the dead has given life to us, those who were spiritually dead. <coughs> 
that God has granted to us. He has given to us everything we need to be like Jesus. And if you'll notice there in the text too, it, it talks about uh, being called to his own glory and excellence. I believe that phrase actually would be better translated as by his own glory and excellence or goodness. It's only because of who God is and what he has done for us uh, that we can be in relationship with him. We must never forget the fact that we are saved on the basis of Christ's virtue, on the basis of his excellence and his glory that, that we are in Christ. Now, last week, we learned that Peter um, wished for his readers that grace be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus. And here again, we see the importance of the knowledge of God. The word Peter uses for knowledge is the word epinosis. He uses two words in this book, gnosis and epinosis. Epinosis is a word that carries the meaning of full or complete knowledge. But it is a knowledge that is experiential. In other words, it's just not dry facts. It's not mere head knowledge. It is knowledge that is acquired through active participation in the pursuit of knowing God. To grow in Christ and to withstand the assault of heretical teachers, Peter's readers need an intimate knowledge of God. It goes beyond just you know, having a textbook mentality of just give me the facts. It's, it carries the weight of I am learning and growing uh, and, and, and learning about the knowledge of God in such a way that it transforms our lives. See, the true knowledge of God always leads to transformation. If, if it doesn't, then it's just a bunch of facts. And that's not the word that Peter uses here. And today, I will say that the need to grow in the true knowledge of God cannot be overstated. In a culture that basically believes the truth is relative, and with so much false teaching in the church today, it's imperative that, that we grow in the epinosis of God, the knowledge of God, so that we can grow in our faith, so that we can stand firm in the faith, that we can defend the faith, and that we can refute the doctrines of demons and those who espouse them. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to ask, well, Paul, what false teachings are you talking about? I'm not really aware of any. Well, therein lies the problem. There, there are so many. I would not have time in the day to be able to cover them all. But let me, let me mention a few. And uh, no doubt, I may offend some of you this morning. And there's no particular order here, except for the last one. There's the word of faith movement. 
Just name it and claim it. I could talk all day on that. There's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You see it everywhere. CRT and woke theology. It's permeating the church. Homosexuality and gender identity. Universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to heaven. There's the social gospel. New age spirituality. Black liberation theology. There's the repudiation of the doctrine of hell. Some people have just chosen to get rid of it altogether. Other people have basically mitigated it to not being in the place of eternal suffering, but temporary suffering. Sounds a little bit like purgatory. There is the false teaching of salvation by works. There is the teaching of salvation is works plus faith or faith plus works. There's the denial of the deity of Christ and the Trinity. There's a belief, and this is so prevalent in the church, the statistics are staggering of how many so-called Christians believe that there are many ways to God, that Jesus isn't the only way, and it's being taught. There is extreme charismatic theology. There is Christian nationalism, easy believism, and permissive grace. And at the root of all of these things is, is, is the one piece of, of false teaching that just permeates them all, and, and that is that the Bible is not the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God. You destroy that doctrine, everything else crumbles. And that's what has happened. Now, like I said, I, I could have talked all day on that. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe if I kind of enumerate what these false teachers are like, you might be able to come up with a bunch of things. And I stumbled across an article by Tim Challies, Pastor Tim Challies, and the article is entitled, Seven False Teachers in the Church Today. So um, I'm gonna give you what they are. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a good starting point. And I'll try to give you just kind of a brief description of each. First of all, you have the heretic. This is the most prominent and perhaps the most dangerous of the false teachers. The heretic is the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. Then you have the charlatan. He's the person or she's the person that uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet. He uses his leadership position to benefit from others' wealth. Then you have the prophet who claims to be gifted by God to speak fresh revelation outside of scripture. In reality, though, he is commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting Christ's church. Then you have the abuser. 
He uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people. Usually he takes advantage of them to feed his sexual lust, though he may also desire power. The abuser claims he is tending souls, but his true interest is in ravishing bodies. When he is not pursuing illicit sexual pleasure, he may be domineering people to gain power, abusing them on his path to prominence. And he does this in the name of, of, of ministry with the claim of God's anointing. And he unapologetically uses and abuses others to feed his lust. I bet you names come to your mind. Then you have the divider. The divider uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. Jude warns about him. In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. The false teacher brings strife, not love. He generates factions, not unity. He desires discord, not harmony. He sometimes makes a minor doctrine into the mark of Christian maturity, causing factions to arise within the body. He may be he may slyly introduce unbiblical doctrines or he may undermine ordained leadership. Number six, the tickler. The tickler is the false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. He is the man pleaser rather than the God pleaser. Paul thought of him as a tickler. Because he wrote, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How true is that? The tickler craves popularity and praise from the world. He preaches only the parts of the Bible they deem acceptable. Therefore, he speaks much of happiness, but little of sin. Much of heaven, but nothing of hell. He gives them only what they want to hear. He preaches a partial gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And again, I'm sure names and faces come to mind. The last one that he gives is the speculator. Speculator is one obsessed with novelty, originality, or speculation. Teaching focused on speculation displaces the sure and steady doctrine of Scripture. The speculator tosses aside the bulk of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess about matters that are trivial or novel. He grows weary of the old truths and pursues, pursues respectability through originality. Today, as in every age, the speculator obsesses about the end times. And somehow, his failed predictions dissuade neither himself nor his followers. Wow. Wow. We're gonna talk more about this in the coming weeks, but let me simply wrap our, our time up together here this morning. 
when you order something from Amazon or go to Ikea and you buy something, you may very well read the words, items needed for assembly. But when you open the Bible, what you find is that you have everything you need. God has provided everything we need to be like Jesus. We simply need to grow. And that's my hope and that's my prayer for every one of you and for myself that we will grow in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not yet begun that journey towards Christ-likeness, I, would, I urge you this morning to surrender your life to Christ. He died on the cross for your sins that you might have life and have it abundantly. But you have to be willing to turn from your sins and believe the gospel, believe that Jesus came, died on the cross, and that God raised him from the dead in order to have that life. And if you've already begun your journey towards Christ-likeness, I just charge you, grow. Grow in the knowledge of God. Avail yourself of God's power and promises so that you can partake in his divine nature. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, for your word to us. And uh, Lord Jesus, Lord, when we think of all that you have done for us, that you have not held back from us, but that you desire more than we do that we become like your son Jesus. I pray that you would just put that hunger and thirst in our souls to know you better, to know our Savior, to long to be like him, and that, Lord, that you would make us wise beyond our years, that we might recognize false teaching when we, when we encounter it, and that, Lord, that we would know how to refute it. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.